Well, good morning. Good to be here with you all and, uh, and to also have the opportunity to look into the Word of God. I trust our hearts have been prepared to that worship, coming to the Lord with thanksgiving, coming to the Lord with reverence and awe, that, that beautiful blend that Psalm 95 calls us to. And now let's look into the Word of God. If you'll turn to Hebrews chapter 3, we'll continue our exposition in this wonderful book, um, several of you have told me how blessed you've been by these expositions, and it's not anything I've done, it's really the Word, right? Just taking time in the book of Hebrews has been so rich. And today we're going to be looking at verses 7 to 11 of chapter 3. Later on tonight, if you're sitting at home and suddenly you experience severe chest pain, you wouldn't ignore that, would you? I mean, it it feels like a heart attack. It feels like a truck's parked on your chest. You would not ignore that. You you would call 911. You would take it very seriously. You would alert anyone else that's in, in the home. You would not ignore that. And today, our text begins, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. There's a great danger of hardening the heart. And there's an urgency in our text, which is really a quote from Psalm 95, which we'll see there's an urgency that is for us all today. It's not tomorrow. It's not yesterday. It's not a week from now or next year. It's today. There's an urgency. And the psalmist, written about a thousand years BC, applied the very lessons of the failure of Israel to his generation And now the writer to the Hebrews, a thousand years later, quotes extensively from Psalm 95 to apply it to the first century church, and in particular, this Jewish church in Rome. And because it says, even in our text, which we'll read in a moment, um, that the Holy Spirit says, it's present tense, the Holy Spirit is saying this, so therefore it applies to us as well 2,000 years later. Such is the nature of the Word of God, which we'll get to in chapter 4 and verse 12. The Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit, both joints and marrow, and is able to judge the thoughts and the intentions of the hearts. And so the Word is living. This book is not like any other book in the history of man. It is living. It always applies to us. And so let's go ahead and read. I'm going to read from verse 7 to the end of the chapter so we can get the broader context. I'll actually begin with verse 6 uh, because verse 6b is really the, the therefore that's in view. For Christ was faithful as a son over his house, whose house we are, if we hold fast our confidence in our boast of our hope firm until the end. Therefore, just as the Holy Spirit says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as when they provoked me, as in the day of trial in the wilderness, where your fathers tried me by testing me and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was angry with this generation and said they always go astray in their heart. They did not know my ways, and I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Take care, brethren, 
that there not be any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. But encourage one another day after day, as long as it is still called today, so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have become partakers of Christ if we hold fast the beginning of our assurance firm until the end. While it is said, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as when they provoked me. For who provoked him when they had heard? Well, indeed, did not all those who came out of Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he angry for 40 years? Was it not those who had sinned and whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they will not enter the rest, but to those who are disobedient? So we see that they were not able to enter because of unbelief. Going down into chapter 4, Therefore let us fear, if while a promise remains of entering his rest, any one of you may seem to have come short of it. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your living, inspired, inerrant word that we have in our laps this morning. We thank you for those that have bled and died to help preserve it. We thank you, Lord, that it is a completed canon, it is a completed word. And Lord, we thank you even for the unique approach and the rhetorical skills of the writer to the book of Hebrews and how he lays out this lengthy quote and then expounds it. Lord, we pray that indeed you would soften our hearts this day. There are some that have yet to receive that heart transplant, some that have yet to bow the knee to Christ to receive a heart of flesh, and we pray that you would speak a word to them There are others who are already in Christ and yet can allow their hearts to become hardened through seasons. And Lord, we pray that you would do a mighty work of softening. Lord, we ask that you would allow your spirit to descend upon us, to fill us, to give us eyes and hearts of understanding into your word. That that we would be so consumed with your word that distractions would fall away one by one. We ask this in the blessed and holy name of Jesus Christ and for his glory. Amen. You'll remember the primary book, uh, primary uh, purpose of the book of Hebrews is to show Christ is superior. Christ is superior to all things, and the new covenant is superior. Remember, it began back in chapter one. Christ is superior to the prophets, right? God has spoken in many ways and in many forms and, and all of this, but Christ has spoken in these last days, he's spoken in his son. Now, there's a lengthy section that we took up several weeks where Christ is superior to the angels. Last week, we begun the section where Christ is superior to Moses. And so the writer just continues to plow ahead, setting up Christ as as the, the glorious great high priest. Last week, we saw verses one to six are framed by two exhortations at the beginning. Consider Jesus. Consider Jesus. Meditate, fill your mind with Jesus Christ. And then that warning of which I just read that let us, we must hold fast our confidence. And so it's bookend by these things. And it's very interesting that, that Moses is faithful, Jesus was faithful, but, but it doesn't stop there because in verse three he says, but, but he has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses. 
And you see they had differing roles in this house as well. Moses was in the house functioning as a manager, as it were. Jesus, as the son, is over the house. He owns the house. And then, of course, the writer in in beautiful New Covenant language says, whose house we are, because we are living stones. We are being built in to a glorious thing. And so we are that house. Well, today, as we consider, as the lengthy quote from Psalm 95 is, is looking back on this exit. It's looking, it's, it's dissecting and expounding what happened in those 40 years of that wilderness journey, that Exodus account. And you'll remember that finally they're, they're in bondage in Egypt and finally they're able to leave with the parting of the Red Sea and begin the journey to the promised land. Now leading up to that, of course, the, there's the 10 plagues that took place. Remember those 10 plagues? And that last plague was what? Passover, right? And, and, and it, was, it was the firstborn dying. And, and so the Jews observed the Passover and applied the blood and the angel of death passed over them. Exodus 12 and verse 29. I'm going to give several references if you want to write them down. It's going to go through very quickly here. Now it came about at midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn of Egypt. Finally, Pharaoh, though, he, he, he said how many times you know, along the way, okay, take your people and go and worship, and then he changes his mind because it says, and it's very interesting because if you mark it well through Exodus, but Pharaoh hardened his heart and then said, you can't leave. And then you'll notice the progression, God hardened Pharaoh's heart. But finally, he's had enough. His heart is hard. He, he wants them out of there. And remember this nation that began in, in our exposition of, of the life of Joseph. 70 persons, right, had grown to be, and the text says, 600,000 men. That's 20 and above um, fighting men, which means there's probably about 2 million people with women and children. It's phenomenal. It's amazing. That's a lot of people, 70 to, to, to 2 million roughly. It says uh, in 1241 of Exodus at the end of the 430 years, to the very day all the hosts of the Lord went out from the land of Egypt. Now as they're going, Pharaoh says leave, the people are going, they haven't even crossed the Red Sea yet, and the people are grumbling and they're complaining already. And then finally Moses stretches out his hand over the sea, in 1421, and swept the sea back by a strong east wind all night and turned the sea into dry land so that the waters were divided. And the sons of Israel went through in the midst of the sea on dry land, and the waters were like a wall to them on their right and on their left. That's a fascinating thing. The Red Sea parted the waters like a wall, and these two million people, do the math how long that would even take to cross, you know, it's phenomenal. But they crossed through on dry land. Meanwhile, God, our sovereign God, in his providence is at work. Here comes Pharaoh and his armies. Pharaoh's changed his mind. Let's hunt them down. We're going after them. We're in hot pursuit. And what happens? The Lord causes the chariots to swerve out of control. And just as they're into the Red Sea, what happens? The waters come crashing down. It says, Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the sea returned returned to its normal state at daybreak, while the Egyptians were fleeing right into it, and the Lord overthrew the Egyptians in the midst of the sea. Well, what happens then? 
Exodus 15, if you know your Bibles, the Song of Moses. There's celebration. They've crossed the Red Sea. I mean, it, it's absolutely amazing. They're finally out of Egypt and the armies are destroyed. And part of what they're singing, the Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. They are absolutely thrilled about this. There's great anticipation. There's great hope. We're finally out of this bondage. And we're eventually going to go to the promised land. So there's fanfare. There's happiness. There's great dreams of what may be coming. And the people are rejoicing, thinking perhaps that we'll be in the promised land in a matter of months. And they're thinking it's so close we can almost taste it. This land flowing with milk and honey. But you know the story. Forty years. Forty years. Those hopes and that celebration and the great anticipation came crashing down on the rocks of the reality that their rebellion and their stubbornness caused them to wander for 40 long years. In fact, right after Exodus 15, you get to Exodus 16, goes in order, and, and what do you see? They're already complaining. In fact, I'm just going to turn back and read in 16 verses 2 and 3. Now the whole congregation of the sons of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness, and the sons of Israel said to them, Would that we had died by the Lord's hand in the land of Egypt when we, when we sat by the pots of meat and we ate bread to the full. For you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. They're not out. I mean, you can probably figure it's days, right? It's just, it's not even long. And they're already grumbling, bringing accusations against the Lord's anointed that this is what you've done. You've just want us to die. And then you know the story. There's manna provided. And then in chapter 17, you see where they're grumbling, they're quarreling again, and, and God allows them to provide the water, and, um, and that's where he strikes the rock. And it was in that place where Moses named the place Massa and Meribah because of the quarrel of the sons of Israel, because they tested the Lord, saying, is the Lord really among us or not? You see, what begins well may not always end well. And that's the concern for the writer to the Hebrews. They had accepted Christ. They're a constituted church. They're, they're, they're there in Rome, hiding from the Jews and from the Romans, not knowing when they're going to go to prison or, or if they're going to be beat up or whatever. And so the writer has this great concern for them. And by the way, I forgot. So the other thing that it's um, referenced is Numbers 14, and that's when the spies go into the land, which I'll talk about in a moment. But think about it, that basically God says, enough, Every, none of the men will enter the promised land. The whole generation had to die off. Now, if 600,000 is the number of men, you know, just for fun, I pulled out my calculator and I started kind of doing some math and it's, you know, 365 days in a year, actually probably 360 back then anyway, um, because of the calendar. But anyway, whatever, 14,600 days, 600,000 men, that's an average of 41 dying per day or say 300 a week. 
So just think, the sand of the desert throughout those years would be filled with more and more graves to where it became a perpetual graveyard because of these, the stubbornness of these people. The writer to the Hebrews wants this persecuted church not to repeat the errors of the failure of the exodus of the Jews. Israel rebelled. They ran back to their own sufficiency rather than looking to God. And brethren, the Bible is full of various warnings with the purpose to turn us from sin and cause us to turn to God. And we have here before us the second warning passage of five in the book of Hebrews. It is a warning. It's meant to get our attention. It's meant for us to pay attention, our ears to perk up, as it were. And so to strengthen this warning, the writer uses this very similar story of the Jews and the Exodus journey. Psalm 95, it applied, as I said, to David's generation, but it also applies to the first century church, but it, it, it applies to us because of the abiding relevance to all generations because the word is living and active. Listen to what Paul told the Romans in Romans 15.4. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. It's written for our instruction. So we need to pay attention. So let's look at this. We're going to um, consider the urgency of today. We're going to look more at the failure of Israel and then some application to us. And Lord willing, we'll take up 12 to 19 um, next week. And so first of all, the urgency of today. The text says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. You see, the prospect of God's judgment is a terrifying thing. The gospel comes in mighty power when we're effectually called, we're regenerated, we're born again, we've embraced Christ, and and that fear begins to dissipate. But the reality is, and that's the thrust of the book, that we must persevere unto the end. Now, we've talked about that, that ultimately that's God that's going to cause us to persevere, but there's also a role in which we do have to as well to pay attention and to hold fast. In stark contrast to that previous section, verses 1 to 6, of Moses being faithful, the writer now brings up this unfaithful example of faithless Israel. The writer does what preachers often do, is is quote a particular passage and, and to frame his thoughts, and that's what he does. And the author will expound this section of Psalm 95, which was the second half of it. He will expound that all the way to chapter 4 and verse 13, as most of the beginning of chapter 4 talks about that rest and that Sabbath rest and all of that. And so this, it's an exposition of Psalm 95 is what we have for almost two full chapters and next week, we'll, we'll see verses 12 to 19 is a unit. It's a warning against unfaithfulness. And, and it's bookend as well with take care, brethren, or see, it's blepo, and then unbelief. And then in the very last verse, you see the same thing. And so it's bookend as a unit. And we'll take that in turn next week. Now, why quote Psalm 95? Did the writer just go into a psalter and just kind of flip, 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 and just... 
Now, there's, there's many particular reasons of why he quoted it. One is, is that this Jewish church would be very familiar with Psalm 95. Psalm 95 was the call to worship every Sabbath evening. Every Jew would have had this psalm completely memorized. They know it backwards and forwards. In fact, just turn back to Psalm 95. I know we, we read it responsively. <clears throat> you can see how it is a call to worship. Oh, come, let us sing for joy to the Lord. Let us shout joyfully to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before his presence with thanksgiving. Let us shout joyfully to him with psalms. There's an exhortation. Let us come. Let us worship. Let us come with joy. And then in verse 3, we have a, a description of God. For the Lord is a great God, a great King above all gods, in whose hands are the depths of the earth, and the peaks of the mountains are His, and the sea is His. His. It, is, it was He who made it, and His hands formed the dry land. A reference to, He is our Creator God. He's above all gods. He's worthy of our worship. In verses 6 and 7, of course, I, we sing this, right? It's, it's a, a popular chorus. Come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord our Maker, for He is our God and we are the people of His pasture and the sheep of His hand. And then, verse 7b, there's a shift. And this is the second half of the psalm. Today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts as you did with Meribah. The two events mentioned is the Exodus 17 and the Numbers 13 and 14, and it ends, and we know that because of verse 11, the last verse. Therefore I swore in my anger, truly they shall not enter my rest. That's when the declaration was made. All the men are going to die. They're going to they're be, that, that desert that you're wandering around will become a virtual, a, 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 a uh, perpetual graveyard. And you think of the wandering, I mean, no doubt that they tracked back over ground. It wasn't, that, that desert's not that big of an area there. And so certainly they traversed back and forth and probably came across some of those graves. Now, another um, thing about this particular psalm is Psalm 95 was one of the psalms that was used during one of the feasts, the Feast of Booze. What was the Feast of Booze? You remember, that was a time in which Israel, one of the three feasts, in which it was an annual feast to remind them of their wilderness journeys and also the great deliverance that the Lord ultimately provided. And so they would go and they would live in these booths in the wilderness for a full week. Now, it was a festive event, but it was a sober reminder to the failure of that generation and encouragement to this generation. So, as I said, Psalm 95 would be a weekly warning to hear well as a call and a charge to carefully listen to the very voice of God. The Hebrew ears would perk up when they heard that sound. In fact, throughout the Scriptures, brethren, don't we have many exhortations? Uh, there's an emphasis to hear God's Word. God speaks powerfully in His Word. He speaks plainly in his word and he speaks in a way that we should take heed of well looking at verse 7a therefore just as the holy spirit says now it's not as though the writer to the hebrews says ah oh, 
congregation, I've gotten a word of knowledge this past week, and I've got something new for you. It's not that at all. He says, well, this is what the Holy Spirit says. It's not some word of knowledge or any of that. And so he quotes Holy Scripture. And and what he's doing here is he's quoting the Holy Spirit. He's referencing the Holy Spirit as being the author of Scripture, right? And so that's very plain. Divine inspiration of all the Scriptures is what he's referencing. Apart from the human author, the Holy Spirit is the ultimate author. In fact, 1 Peter 1.21, familiar text to all of us, for no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. Okay? In fact, he'll use this very construction later in chapter 10 and verse 15. And the Holy Spirit also testifies to us after saying, and then quotes more scripture. And so, just as the Holy Spirit says, Today, today, an absolute urgency of hearing from God to pay attention. And the writer has already used this in chapter 2 and verse 1. Look at this. For this reason, we must pay closer attention to what? What we have heard. Pay closer attention so that we do not drift away from it. There's an urgency to pay attention There's a reference three times in chapter 3, a direct quote in in verse 7 and 15, and in chapter 4 and verse 7, if you hear his voice. Chapter 5 and verse 11, he actually says, concerning him we have much to say and it is hard to explain since you have become dull in hearing. So the writer is speaking of the urgency of today. Today, if you hear his voice, not tomorrow, not yesterday, not next month, today. Today is the day of decision. It's the very day of decision. Isn't that what Paul says in 2 Corinthians? Today is the day of salvation. Why does he say that? Because it's not tomorrow, it's not last week, it's not next year, it's today. It's always applicable today. You have no guarantee of tomorrow. Today is the day. The emphasis is not so much on what others have said, but what he says in a particular way, to hear his voice. Jesus has told us, my sheep hear my voice. So true sheep will hear the voice of God through the proclamation of the word of God. In fact, Paul will tell us in Romans, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. So the point of this section very clearly is the one who knows the truth about Jesus and his gospel, that they should not imitate the sluggish, sinful response of Israel during those wanderings. Today, if you hear his voice, listen to what Spurgeon says. A dreadful if many would not hear They would put off the claims of love and provoke their God. Today, in the hour of grace, in the day of mercy, we are tried as whether we have an ear for the voice of our Creator. Nothing is said of tomorrow. He limits it it to a certain day. He presses for an immediate attention for our own sakes, and He asks instantaneous obedience 
Shall we yield to it? The Holy Spirit says, today. Will we grieve him today? Today, if you hear his voice, verse 8, do not harden your hearts. Now, heart is not referring to that organ that's pumping that blood through your body right now. Um, as fascinating as that organ is, in fact, the Bible never refers, cardia in the Greek never refers to that organ, but it refers to the very center of our being, our intellect, our emotions, our will. And, and the writer of the Hebrews only uses the, the word 10 times in the entire book, but six of those are in chapter 3 and 4. What is the hardness of heart? It's, it's, a making, it's, it's a person becoming more and more stubborn and obstinate. It, it originates in unbelief, leading to contempt for God, in turn for distinctive behavioral patterns such as grumbling, quarreling, disobedience, and bitterness. Horatius Bonar, the Scottish pastor of the 1800s, says, In all unbelief, there are these two things, a good opinion of oneself and a bad opinion of God. That's the root of unbelief. Paul warns that our hearts and our consciences can become seared or insensitive. By a continual hardening of the heart, there's more and more callous and we can become seared in our, in, our, in our consciences. Eventually, you have scar tissue that replaces the skin of, uh, that, that, that's soft and, and pliable. It's like when I was hit by that Yukon, when I was cycling out on the road two and a half years ago, my elbows and knees received road rash, and there's still scar tissue uh, on my knees where there's no feeling underneath it. We must be careful not to allow our hearts to be hardened. We need to pray in the closet to God that he would keep our hearts soft and tender, that we would be open to correction, that we would be open to that conviction, that we would keep short accounts with God and with man. D.L. Moody, the great evangelist, uh, traveled the world, actually spoke in Spurgeon's pulpit once, um, in the 1871, during that year, a series of evangelistic meetings. And after he was preaching in Chicago there, at the conclusion of his sermons, he would often say this, go home, think about what I said, and make up your minds about Jesus tomorrow. Now the great fire of Chicago came, and many perished, and some that were in that meeting actually perished. And D.L. Moody, Moody made reference to that as the biggest blunder of his life. And he started emphasizing, today, don't wait till tomorrow. It's today, 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 today is the day of decision in regards to Christ. Spurgeon again says, do not harden your hearts. Do not provoke your God by your quibbling or your murmuring and your idolatry. Act not as those unbelievers who died in the wilderness. A common way of provoking God and hardening the heart is that indicated in the context. Do not harden your hearts as they did in the rebellion and the day of testing in the wilderness. That is to say, by unbelief, by saying, God cannot really save me. He is not able to actually forgive me. The blood of Christ is not able to truly cleanse me. Maybe some of you young people feel that. Maybe, can he really forgive me? 
Is there really an urgency of today? Can he, can he really wipe away all of my sins and give me a new nature? And the answer, of course, is yes. So we see this progression here. What first, the dissenting into wickedness, they provoked the Lord. And then the discrediting of that wickedness where it says, and then they tried me and tested me. And then finally, you see the very length, 40 years. 40 years. It's a long time. The word provoke means, it only occurs here when it's quoted in verse 15, means embitterment and exasperation. It's um, the direct translation from the Hebrew is Meribah. And so the writer, of course, is using the Septuagint, the Septuagint translation, the Greek translation of the Old Testament. And if you paid attention in Psalm 95, it actually mentions Meribah and Massah. But here, it's, it, since those, the root of what those words mean is the testing and rebellion, that's what's used here. And so in verse 9, you see, when your fathers tried me by testing me and saw my works for 40 years, Therefore, I was angry with this generation because they always go astray in their heart and they did not know my ways and I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Numbers 13 and 14, very, very important. We see that the 12 spies, a representative from all 12 tribes, they go in for 40 days, the number 40 again, right, to spy out the promised land. They come back. There's two men of courage, Joshua and Caleb. And after the 10 are giving the report, but they're giants in the land and they're bringing back all of this produce and grapes and clusters and all this, this, this uh, great food and fruit. They're bringing all of that back and they're saying, look how great it is, but we can never go in there because the people are like giants. Our God can't really give us the victory by going in. And Joshua and Caleb are quoted in the text there as as rebuking the people. Don't revolt against God. He is able to give us the victory. Numbers 14, 21, Surely all the men who have seen the glory in my signs I performed in Egypt in the wilderness, you have put me to to the test these ten times and have not listened to my voice, shall by no means see the land which I swore to my fathers. That's the Lord saying, that's enough. I'm done. It's enough. You're not entering the land, but your children who you said would perish in the wilderness, they shall go and take possession of the land. And so Kadesh Barnea, where that took place, became just a symbol for Israel's ultimate disobedience. And then 40 years, um, I think this is part of a hymn. It says, they saw his wonders wrought And then his praise they sung, but soon his works of power forgot and murmured with their tongue. And that that, that all happened really quick, didn't it? God was angry with this generation. The word that's used here for anger is a compound. It means extreme anger and disgust. (laughs) It's not a word you want being used of God directed towards you at all. And in the New Testament, it only occurs here. God is mightily upset and was upset with the Israelites for them provoking him in the wilderness. Jude makes reference. says, Now I desire to remind you that though you know all things once and for all, that the Lord, after saving a people out of the land of Egypt, subsequently destroyed those who do not believe. Again, a warning against 
unbelief. The psalmist in Psalm 81 makes reference, but my people did not listen to my voice and Israel did not obey me. So I gave them over to the stubbornness of their heart to walk in their own devices. Turn to Romans 1 for a moment. Romans 1, speaking of the depravity of the Gentiles here. Verse 21, for even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but became futile in their speculations and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to, and you can see the similarities of this, this was disobedient Israel, though they were Jewish. Professing to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for the image in the form of corruptible man and of the birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. Therefore, God gave them over in the lust of their hearts to impurity so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them over to degrading passions and so forth and so on. Verse 28, and just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind to do those things which are not proper. God gave them over, subsequently destroyed them. He gives them over to the stubbornness of their heart. And then, of course, the reference to they do not know my ways. God's way is always best, brethren. I mean, again and again, we're told it's, that is the way of righteousness. That's the right way. Psalm one forty-five seventeen. the Lord is righteous in all of his ways. And this idea of rest, they shall not enter my rest. What is that? That's a buzzword for what? Promised land, right? It's a, the, the promised land and, and, and even more, you know, symbolic of, of our heavenly rest as the writer will develop that. It refers to land beyond the Jordan, first promised to Abraham and his descendants. But all the adult males had to die before they would enter. Deuteronomy written in the last year of this Exodus journey, um, says, Now the time that it took for us to come to Kadesh Barnea until we crossed the brook Zered was 38 years until all the generation of men of war perished from within the camp as the Lord had sworn to them. A glaring statement of God has fulfilled that curse that, that when he said, I swore in my anger they will not enter my rest. Moses is saying, this has, come, this has come to fruition. But the rest also points to us who are converted. Eh, the new creation, the turmoil that's inside for the unbeliever that, that lacks peace, this rest comes to us in, in a very special way. In chapter 4, the next chapter will tell us Christ is our Sabbath rest. But the reality is, is today we live in the days of the wilderness. We haven't entered that final rest. We live in the day of conflict. We live in the day of, of disappointment. We, we are keenly aware we haven't entered that promised land of that final rest, right? And we long for it. We long for it. Listen to Jonathan Edwards. He says, trials have a tendency to distinguish between true religion and false religion, 
and and to cause the difference between them evidently to appear. In other words, you will know them by their fruits. But trials for the mature Christian actually can be used to see God in a more crystal view, a more pure view. Listen to Donald Barnhouse. He says, how wonderful that when we are blinded by tears in our trials, that we can nevertheless see our God. In fact, our tears become crystal lenses through which he is magnified. And in the midst of suffering, we realize the greatness of his power and the tenderness of his love. Because we're reminded he will never leave us or forsake us. Well, a couple points of application, brethren. First of all, this is a sober warning against unbelief. That was the title of the message. If you want all the benefits that God gives you, your daily bread and all of these blessings and all of that, but you have no interest in God himself, you will not persevere unto the end. You might be able to profess for a while. You might be able to talk the talk and walk the walk. You will not persevere until the end. Israel grumbled for 40 years, mercy after mercy, water for their thirst, manna out of heaven to to fill their bellies, the pillar of fire that guided them the entire way. God was with them. Their clothes and their shoes didn't wear out the entire time, and yet they grumbled again and again and again. And some of you, when you encounter trial or your circumstances take a turn that, that is not favorable to you, you can sometimes accuse God, and we should never do that. As it says in the text, going astray, not knowing the ways of the Lord. That's why we need, that's why doctrine is important, so that we know the very character of God and who He is. Philippians 2.14, do all things without grumbling and disputing. Complaining about whether it's your circumstances or the people that God has put in your life, complaining is a symptom of a serious spiritual problem. It's a revolting to God that is rooted in one thing, a low view of God. That I have special rights. That God does not deserve to rule by His providence in my life. And so we bring God down. And that's why knowing the doctrine of God, understanding His attributes and His character is so important. That's why being biblically literate is vital that we not fall into that. Secondly, We were exhorted last week in verse 1 to consider Jesus. And I think that is so vital in this. The Israelites should have focused their thoughts upon God, but also God's man was Moses. Moses was the mediator. Moses was the one hearing from God and communicating to the people and all of that. And they they did not, and it it was counted against them. But if, if they were condemned for ignoring Moses, how much more greater a charge it is for us, those of us in the new covenant, who have new covenant lights, to forsake Jesus Christ, the greatest mediator ever between God and man, the God-man. How much greater of an offense is that to a holy God? Chapter 2 and, and verse 3, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation. Our eyes have been opened to something of this 
the wonder and the greatness of this salvation. Henry Drummond said, Christ distinguished between doubt and unbelief. Doubt says, I can't believe. Unbelief says, I won't believe. Doubt is honest. Unbelief is obstinate. Where do you fall if you're outside of Christ? Maybe, maybe you have doubts. Maybe you're not sure. But, but, but is it that I won't believe? I won't bow the knee to Christ. That's being obstinate. And lastly, Jesus succeeded where Israel failed. Jesus himself had a wilderness experience, didn't he? Remember his temptation? For 40 days, one day for every year that Israel tested God and failed. And then have you ever considered those temptations that the devil brought to Jesus? They're the very, they're the very things that Israel failed in. And they're brought to Christ. And of course, he doesn't fail. In fact, Matthew chapter 4, I'm just going to read a couple of verses for us. Israel doubted God's care of them. Jesus fully entrusts himself to God. In chapter 4 and verse 7, Jesus said to him, On the other hand, it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Jesus himself never complained about hunger or thirst. Israel continually complained about hunger and thirst. Jesus was in the wilderness for 40 days and succeeded where Israel failed. He is the pioneer of our salvation. He has blazed a new way through his perfect obedience. And if you are in Christ and you are a child of God, you have his imputed righteousness credited to you, justified by faith. You have now a new power by the working of the Holy Spirit on the inside so that we can say, along with the Apostle Paul, I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives with me and me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Will you make it to the wilderness of this life? Will you make it to the true promised land? The only way is to fix our eyes on Jesus. We'll see next week. Take care, brethren, that there not be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away. Verse 13, one of the remedies, but encourage one another day after day, as long as it is called today, so that none will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. And if you're outside of Christ, please see the folly of unbelief. Please consider the 600,000 men that could not enter the promised land because of stubbornness and being obstinate and thinking they knew better than their God. Don't be like them. Some of you hear the gospel week after week and yet harden your heart. Oh, may the Lord soften your heart, give you a new heart. G. Campbell Morgan observes this. Unbelief is not failure in intellectual apprehension, It is disobedience in the presence of the clear commands of God. It's probably the best quote I've ever read from G. Campbell Morgan. Um, Excellent. I mean, Jesus comes on the scene in the beginning of the Gospel of Mark. Repent. Believe. the The kingdom is at hand. Have you repented? Have you believed in him? He's such a suitable savior. 
We, we, Pastor Steve opened up with those beautiful words from Matthew 11. Come unto me, all you who labor and are heavy laden. Trust in his finished work, and he will save you. Let's pray. Oh, Father, how we thank you for your word. How we thank you even for the lessons of faithless Israel and how they are a warning to us. Lord, we pray that you would indeed quicken us and quicken our hearts. Lord, that we would carve away the calluses if our hearts have become hard in any particular area. Lord, that you would do your mighty work. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.